0: Citycast from Explicity.
1: When in silks you came and dazzled me with the beauty of your spring, you brought a flower to bloom, love within my being. It lived with me, breath of my breath, being in my being, nor left my side. Now the wheel of time has turned, and you are gone, no joys abide. You pressed your lips upon my lips, your heart upon my beating heart, and I have no wish to fall in love again, for they who sold love's remedy have shut shop, and I seek in vain. My life now gives no ray of light, I bring no solace to heart or eye. Out of dust to dust again, of no use to anyone am I. Delhi was once a paradise where love held sway and reigned, but its charms lie ravished now, and only ruins remain. No tears were shed when shroudless they were laid in common graves. No prayers were read for the noble dead. Unmarked remain their graves. The heart distressed, the wounded flesh. The mind ablaze, the rising sigh. The drop of blood, the broken heart. Tears on the lashes of the eye. But things cannot remain, O Zaffar, thus, for who can turn? Through God's great mercy and the Prophet, all may yet be well.
0: I will admit that until I had read William Dalrymple, I knew little of the history of Delhi, which is inextricable from the history of India. Although I lived in Delhi for eight years, all I ever knew about the history of India, my country, was what was taught to me by middle school history teachers. They merely regurgitated dry passages from textbooks. There was no romance in the way we were taught history. So when I lived in Delhi, right in the heart of visible history with crumbling monuments and all, I couldn't get past those apathetic and uncurious history textbooks. And then I left Delhi to move to Bangalore. And then William Dalrymple happened. In the decades that he unraveled Delhi for me, it morphed from a city that I only knew as too expensive for my modest salary to a city that hell had gins in it, gins with a D. The more I listened to William Dalrymple as I interviewed him today— the more I appreciated his sentient feel for history, a feeling that makes humans out of historical personalities. For this reason, probably, when I first read City of Jinns, I will confess to an inexplicable sense of envy, as if I should and could have written that book. A sort of, oh, I wish I had said that, feeling. But I had no such flights of fancy reading everything else he has written, most recently Anarchy, an account of the East India Company, and what happens when there is no separation between uh, merch and state. Dalrymple's prose is compelling and direct, and that makes his books that much more engaging. Let's find out what else makes him one of the most respected writers of the history of India and the entire region of its historical influence. So, William Dalrymple... It is my privilege to welcome you to the Literary City. Very kind of you to have me. Thank you very much. Researching you for this podcast meant going down one delightful rabbit hole after another. But one question remained unanswered. William, what makes you laugh?
1: Quite a lot of things. Not necessarily appropriate. (laughs) I think... um, I mean... grew up in with a with a family where laughter was very much part of everyday life and and a release for pressure valves and uh uh I, I laugh a lot.
0: <laughs> Just a little unsettling to hear a historian say that. But I guess there is a sense of humor to the fog of war.
1: No, I exactly no I think um I mean my early books um the Travel books, uh, particularly the first two in Zanadu and of I think were basically comic books uh, and, and are, are written at least partly for laughs. Um, things darken a bit as middle age sets in and we start dealing with sort of genocide of Christians in the Middle East and uh, uh, 1857 and colonial uprisings and the loot of India. But. Uh, right, life
0: happens and that other thing.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't. I mean, I've got any said saying that's a, a reflection of some sort of dark trajectory in my life. Far from it. I've been very lucky and had a lovely time.
0: The foibles of men, always funny. Now, the poems that you read at the beginning of this podcast, they were from uh, the last mogul, correct? Bahadur Shah Zafar. How did you come upon them?
2: Oh,
1: it's... Uh, I came back uh, with that text, um, that translation from a trip to Karachi um, long ago when I went to um, track down the great novelist of Delhi, Ahmed Ali, the author of Twilight in Delhi, which had just been republished. I loved it. It was a wonderful, wonderful book about... Then I discovered that Ahmed Ali miraculously was actually still alive. Um, and when I went to found him, he'd spent quite a lot of his... Seventies and eighties, translating beautifully the poetry of Galib and Zafar and Zork, uh, the great Urdu poets into English. And this was one uh, he'd given me, which was it it takes several of the last couplets of Zafar, some of which are apocryphal, and uh, and some some scholars believe may not actually been written by Zafar because they're not in his divan. But he'd put them together into a sort of lament. Delhi in a sort of Tennysonian style, uh, and so these couplets have become rather like a sort of Victorian uh, lament, uh, and I loved it. I thought it was a beautiful, beautiful um, uh, versioning of, of Zafar's Persian couplets and Urdu couplets, and uh, I put it as a, as a sort of epigram for for, for last Mogul. Um, uh, and it's, it, it, it sits there. That stands to me as a beautiful. Uh, a,
0: a translation or version uh, of Zafir's work. The good thing is that these things don't always have to be subject to provenance, do they?
1: Exactly, it's it's it's, it's a work of art in itself. That that poem, and and, and I've, I've read it all over the world, uh, never fails
0: to move audiences. You started as a travel writer. You were just about twenty-two when you wrote in Zanadu.
1: Yes, it's when I was published. I wrote it when I was
0: 21, oh, and okay. I was still at college and just finishing college. How, as a college student, did you make the trip from Italy to uh, Chengdu in Mongolia?
1: I was very lucky. I went to this college at Cambridge, Trinity. So there were, there were scholarships. And I noticed there was a particular scholarship available on the notice board for uh, medieval historians. And I knew there were only you know, a handful of us in the college. So that I had a pretty good chance of getting it, getting something. So I, I went into the library and got out of Time's Atlas of World History and thought, what's the longest medieval journey I can possibly do? Let's apply for the largest possible sum of money. (laughs) And I found Marco Polo's journey. It was literally that sort of uh, uh, spontaneous and unplanned. And I put in an application. And then um, just at the very end of term, an envelope was put under my door saying, you won £750. And I went off and, and did this trip following... Marco Polo.
0: Seven fifty pounds got you from got
1: me from Cambridge to Beijing and back. <laughs> <laughs> Even then, when obviously seven hundred pounds was worth much more, um, I don't think it. Pay- I we worked out that we, we wouldn't cut calcul- wouldn't pay for more than at least half the trip at uh, uh, staying in hotels so a lot of time was spent sleeping out i had a, a sleeping bag and a and a foam mat and ended up bedding down on in sort of caravanserais or mosques or just in uh, woods on the outskirts of towns and uh, uh, but you know when you're 21 these things uh,
0: don't frighten you i imagine marco polo and his men had to do similar things well exactly and it, and it was a wonder oh i mean it's like,
1: you know it, i've done many trips in my life and, and some long and exciting ones but Nothing has ever quite matched that trip for the sheer wonder of sort of starting off in Jerusalem and ending up in
0: Zanadu, literally in in Mongolia. I read that you said Bruce Chatwin was an influence on you. He was an influence, but in a sense quite a
1: dangerous influence in that his prose style was so attractive and infectious, but also uncopyable. He had this incredibly terse style. And I remember when I first produced a first chapter for Inzanadu. Mm-hmm. i have been reading too much Chatwin, and I sent it to my editor. Uh, and he bought me up when I was still at Cambridge. I got a spectacular advance that had made it into the papers because it was so large at the time. And I sent him this sort of, I thought, beautifully worked, sort of terse, Chatwin-esque passages. And I got a message on the answering sheet, uh, and uh, he said, Willie... I hope these are notes, because if they're not, we're going to have to talk about paying that advance back. Ouch.
2: We'll be back after a quick break. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of the Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast. Where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast.
0: <laughs> I had read In Xanadu just after I had read In Patagonia. <laughs> and I figured that any book that had in in the title couldn't be half bad. <laughs> I wasn't disappointed.
1: Well, Xanadu is a very, very much a, a youthful folly. Uh, I, I'm embarrassed about it now. But at the time, obviously, it was a big success. It, it kicked my career off and was a bestseller in many languages. And I think it was very much that time, the mid 80s. Travel writing was very popular. Oh, yes, um,
0: it certainly was.
1: Everyone seemed to be jumping on a train and having a bestseller. And, and I just caught the
0: end of that before it collapsed. Speaking of any comparisons with Bruce Chatwin, Mike Derda of the Washington Post once wrote that you were as good as Chatwin. <laughs> Indeed, as a lay reader, I couldn't tell the difference. I thought both books were fantastic. Oh, you're very kind. Uh, he's he's a great Idol of mine still,
1: and and I mean, I think he's someone who's faded very much from view. He was a writer who was extremely fashionable in the eighties, nineties, and then he died of AIDS. Mm. Uh, and uh, did you get to meet him? I knew him well, and uh, he was a great help. And and uh, I mean, I didn't meet, know him
0: well, but as a young writer, he was very kind to me. So when you left Cambridge, you didn't leave a note that said "gone to Shangdu," did you? <laughs> no, I didn't.
1: I I I, I just set off <laughs> i didn't have anyone to leave a note for on my mum, i suppose
0: <laughs> it would seem that moving from travel writing to history for you was a natural progression is there a significant overlap between the two there is an overlap and and um i went from writing
1: travel books which were full of history to history books which i suppose are full of a sense of place uh and uh when i write my history i very much feel i have to go to the places that i'm writing about and uh, in order to give color and context and, and and geographic geographical weight to to where i'm going and i and and often you know you can spend months in the library reading about something but five minutes in the place completely changes your view about it uh to give an example from the from the anarchy i uh, the the great uh uh, battles against the uh, between the East India Company and the Marathas, particularly in battles like uh, Agam and. Uh, uh, p- when the Duke of Wellington was taking on the troops of, uh, of Sindhya. Um, I'd read that it was near Ajanta, and Ajanta I knew very well because, I, like anyone else, I'd been around the caves. So I had this image of, of the battle taking place in a narrow valley like Ajanta, uh, and the sort of troops sort of shooting each other across a valley or something. In actual fact, although it's only 10 miles away from there, it's in a completely dead flat plain, um, and a, a totally different landscape. Uh, and had I not bothered to go and wander around uh, in actual fact with the current Duke of Wellington who, who wanted to see it and I, I I went along with it um
0: I would never have I you know I'd have given a completely false impression of what of what that battle was like you've written much on colonial India now did you find Hobson-Jobson or did Hobson-Jobson find you I remember reading
1: um about Hobson-Jobson, first of all, in a book of essays by Salman Rushdie. Uh, oh yes, um, the very, the very first wonderful um, book of Rushdie journalism, uh, which came out in the sort of, I think, the nineties, uh, and which uh, is one of my most uh, treasured uh, books of, of book reviews and essays. roughly I think, never quite equaled those early essays in his nonfiction. And um, he wrote a wonderful essay on Hobson Johnson, uh, and, and all the British words, which turn out to be derived from different Indian languages, whether Tamil or Telugu or Hindi. Uh, or, and um, so I remember going into Bari Sands in car market in in the late 80s, or early 90s, and buying a copy of Hobson-Jobson, and getting it bound in leather, and, and, and just browsing through it. It was, it was a wonderful thing. And, and I bring it into City of Gins. You, uh,
0: yes. You also brought it into anarchy. You know, one of your footnotes you had uh, quoted from Sir William Foster's The English Factories in oh. India where he uses extraordinary words that that make me blush i can't use them in the podcast but but he, he did say that the english were reviled in the streets of surat with words such as this b word and this b word which my modest language will not address, Foster's book, volume 3, page 345.
1: Words that one would have assumed are just used by Punjabi taxi drivers today uh, uh, to shout at people to get in their way uh, turn out to be of of great uh, antiquity and and to be shouted at
0: early Brits in India in the the 17th century. Sadly, I'll say it's also all the salespeople who work for me. (laughs) It's not all Hobson-Jobson that I refer to. It's also the fact that you had to deal with uh, obscure English and old usage. For instance, you use the word factors in reference to to what? Uh, Agents? Representatives? How are they called? Factors? Yeah,
1: the the East India Company early settlements were called factories. Um, Some of them were factories in the modern sense you mean like things that produce things yeah th- things that produce things and 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 um, but many of them were just what today would be called godans. i think a storage places or um, or uh, i suppose most like a, a hotel or a caravanserai that they were you know places that were, had, were residential but also had eating eating quarters and and, and uh um, they were modelled very much on a on a mogul caravanserai, the ones, and the people that lived in the factories were called factors. Ah,
0: okay, but I imagine you have to deal with these things all the time. So, what happens? Do you have to go find the etymology? <laughs> really obscure words and phrases. Well,
1: I've been writing about the East India Company for twenty years now, so I, I kind of know the lingo, uh, and I often forget. I often I often forget that other people don't. But if you're dealing with a very early company, you have something else to to. Um, uh put your uh, head around which is called um uh secretary hand uh and it's english written in inside looks a bit like Cyrillic script it's a different completely different typeface um not just typeface completely different script uh, uh some of the words are are common with english but but uh, it is something you have to learn. And, and the early letters of the factors from the factories in, in uh, India, from the Surat factory to these company headquarters, for the first hundred years are in secretary hand. And, and I found that I could, you know, it would take me, well, suddenly when I began, it would take me a whole morning to do a couple of sides of A4. Uh, you know, one would move very slowly. Although it was English, uh-huh. uh, it, the, the script was unfamiliar. Uh, um,
0: uh, do you mean it was a bit like Pittman's shorthand?
1: Yes, it's a bit like that. Exactly like that. Yeah. Elizabethan version of it.
2: <laughs> right, right.
0: It's all very obscure to me. And let me tell you, I spent the better part of this morning yeah. hunting down the etymology of this, that, and the other. <laughs> Another rabbit hole, William. Well, plenty of those, exactly. But I do enjoy adventure. <laughs> Speaking of which, what's the Dalrymple holiday look like? Beach or mountains?
1: Or oh, both. Uh, very hard to choose between the two. Um,
0: depending on time of year,
1: it would be... I mean, if it's Christmas, I get to go. If it's this time of year, I get the hell out of Delhi and go straight up to
0: uh, uh, Chamba, uh, somewhere gorgeous above Kangra. And the Jaipur Literature Festival is headed to Soneva Fushi in the Maldives, isn't it? You know, I recently interviewed Sanjoy Roy in a previous episode. Sanjoy? I heard it and I, I listened to it. And Sanjoy was saying that this event at uh, Soneva Fushi is going to be one of your bespoke editions a rather exclusive uh, event tell me about it <laughs> i think this is partly
1: it. so the jlf is, is a is a threesome um there is uh a, a trinity who who run it sanjoy is the producer and he does an astonishing job running the business side and the logistics and so on um but um Sadjoy has, you know, many ways of of, of making the uh, ends meet uh, for Jaipur and 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 and. and, and Recently, it has often taken the form of, of, of expeditions to all sorts of odd places, and Namrit and I get an email to signify that we're off to Boulder, Colorado in September or uh, disappearing uh, uh, off the face of the earth to Belfast or uh, in, in, in August. We uh, I mean, never quite know. Anyway, Maldives is a new one. I've never been. This is all Sadjoy's initiative. And, uh, I mean, I'd say he does a wonderful job keeping us afloat, and 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 I'm very, very grateful to him. But you know, <laughs> You never quite know what's going to come next. That uh, Maldives is definitely Maldives definitely beats Belfast. I'll
0: wager. Looking forward to it, though.
1: Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it.
0: Cool. We both are. And so must your authors, right? I mean, one of the
1: issues with literary festivals is you know getting the great writers to come, and and um, we'd be very lucky just because Jaipur just sounds so fantastic. Very few people. Turned down invitations to or Right from the beginning, when we were small and unheard of, people would accept because they, you know, they, they like the idea of getting out of uh, New York or uh, or London in 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 January when it's miserable in 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 London and freezing in New York. Ditto, you know, with with bells on with the Maldives. Who's going to turn down a trip to a fantastic uh, atoll in the Maldives? And, um, but I have to say, I mean, let's be clear. These, these
0: are wonderful things and they keep us afloat and, and we couldn't probably survive financially without them. Well, Suneva Fushi in the Maldives or anywhere else, the JLF does arrive with a certain amount of pedigree, doesn't it?
1: We're very proud, the three of us, of what we've built um, it is now the, the biggest literary festival in the world. It's it, one of the one of the reasons I think that we've done so well as a threesome at Jaipur is that none of us could do the other's job. Um, Sanjoy is a spectacular producer. Uh, Namita knows the basher and the uh, Indian literary scene like very few other people, uh, and I been lucky enough to have, you know, some pretty good contacts with the with the global literary community in the course of my book tours and so on. And, and, uh, and can, you know, send out invitations to friends from all over and they will come. Uh, and, and between the three of us, it's we've seen this thing grow from a very, very small uh, experimental event in the Durbar Hall <laughs> to, to this vast sprawling thing that happens each January now.
0: And cycling back to William Dalrymple, a very wise man once ought to have said, dying is one of the worst things that you can do for your literary reputation. Mm. What is William Dalrymple going to do to keep living? That's a very ominous question. <laughs> oh, I'm kidding. <laughs> I think that's it. That uh, was quoting
1: I you, as you know. <laughs> yes, it's, and I think that was about Bruce Chapman. Chapman, um, uh, Chapman uh, didn't. Didn't um, do his reputation any good by dying, <laughs> because once you once you cease to produce books, you know the publicity engine of, of publishing companies look the other way, and uh, your books sink or swim. I mean, sometimes you find books coming back
0: into print. Hmm. How much the East India Company has taught us all, exactly. Uh, but uh, no, I'm 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 alive and well, and,
1: and looking forward to. Um, uh continuing writing, I actually am about to give birth on Monday to begin work putting actually pen to paper on my latest book, The Golden Road. And the book is about? The diffusion of uh, Indian culture around Asia. Part one is the story of Buddhism going up to China. Part two is how Hinduism and Buddhism both went down to Southeast Asia. And part three is how Indian numbers and science and so on went to um, first to Baghdad, and then through the Arab world, and uh, were brought fr- from Al- what's now Algeria to Italy by Fibonacci. Uh, and the book ends in twelfth century Sicily with Indian numbers finally becoming uh, the replacement for Latin numbers in Europe. That's an awful lot of research. How long does it take you to write a book? I. Tend to operate on sort of four year cycles. Um, and it's normally three years research, of which the first year will be combined with the book tour of the last book. So I will be reading and researching while, you know, moving on planes from Adelaide to Sydney or from LA to San Francisco, wherever it is that I'm doing book readings. Um, And then finally, in year four, actually sit down and try and write it uh, fairly quickly. I try and write a book in six months, but uh, uh, yeah, I try and history books,
0: fat that they are, um, usually take me nine months to a year. That's very disciplined. It means you must have some sort of schedule to your writing. Uh, Are you like Hemingway, early in the morning, right standing up? I am not standing up, but early morning. <laughs> um, and uh, I think
1: I probably, I, I have always been a great Hemingway fan. And I used to read those descriptions that he wrote of getting up early in the morning and, mm. and putting on his shorts and, and going down to the typewriter. Um, there's a wonderful description of it in his posthumous book, the garden of Eden, which is a lot about the writing process written ironically when he was finding writing much more difficult and uh, towards the end. And yeah, um, yep it it I mean to be a writer is such a privilege and a gas, uh, and it's such a delightful and exciting and thrilling and fulfilling way to make a living if you can make it work right but there is always the but, which is actually the writing. <laughs> <laughs> the writing bit of it, uh, the writing bit of it is no fun oh, at all. That little uh, bit of detail, <laughs>
0: that little bit of detail. So I imagine this is an all-consuming, very disciplined period. I stop drinking. I diet. I get up early.
1: Um, much the worst bit of it is the first month, because once you've actually got a pile of stuff that's working, you can relax a little, um, and if you have you know, 100 pages of good prose, you know that it's going to be, probably going to be okay.
0: And when may I anticipate you're assigning a copy of the book for me? Hopefully, it, it should be out
1: in 18 months, I think it all goes well. But I, I'm very nervous about this one. But I, for the last 20 years, I've been doing um, colonial history in the 18th century, which has its own problems, but it's uh, you know, I knew by the time I got to the Anarchy, I absolutely knew how to do it. I knew where the sources were, and I ha- had this wonderful collaborator, Bruce Winnell, who's my wonderful friend, who's worked worked all the Persian translations, and he was also a, a sort of um, ustad in in all sorts of ways. Um, he he died uh, after the Anarchy. Um, Was published. He had terrible pancreatic cancer. Oh, I'm sorry. And so uh, this current book is 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 partly, uh, in a sense, trying to find another um, another world to occupy. Now that um, with with Bruce gone, in many ways, the kind of the key to Narnia uh, in in that uh, has been lost. In the sense that he was able to read any Urdu, any Persian um, source that you threw at him, and and therefore had access to a lot of Indian history that no one else could read. Uh, and uh, we went off together to weird little libraries in places like Tonkin, Rajasthan, or Patna, or the National Archives, uh, the vast stacks of the British Museum, and we'd find the stuff that no one ever harvested. Um, and of 20 years, the four books of the Company Quartet, The Anarchy, White Mughals, The Last Mughal, Turn the
0: King, um, that's what we did. Once again, I'm sorry for your loss. And uh, now the quartet is available as a collection, isn't it?
1: Now, not in America, but in uh, India and in Britain, um, there's a four-volume box set uh, with them in not the order I wrote it, but the chronological order, which is Anarchy, uh, which starts in the time of Shakespeare and takes you through to the Duke of Wellington and the Marathas in 1803. White moguls is set. As a sort of micro history in, in Hyderabad between 1798 and 1805, the romance between Patrick and Kerenisa. Then there is Return of the King, which is the story of the East India Company's disastrous attempt to invade Afghanistan and the retreat from Kabul and the massacre of that army, largely Indian, uh, which never made it uh, to Jalalabad. And finally, Last which is the story up to Mahanrshad Zafar, where we opened this podcast to bring it very
0: nicely in a circular uh, point to where we began. <laughs> yes, indeed. That is true. We are back to the last mogul. Now, there's a link in the podcast description to where you might be able to buy the uh, quartet. William, I know that you said that you lost the key to Narnia, and I know that this is not going to make up for it. But as the mayor, I'd like to offer you a key to the literary city. I just have to go look for it. As soon as I find it, I'll mail it to you. (laughs) Thank you very much. William Dalrymple, thank you so much for your time and for being my guest. A huge pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Fun with William Dalrymple. And I'll be back with What's That Word? And I'm back with What's That Word? And to help me with it is my co-host. And as always, I will let her introduce herself.
2: Hi, my name is Pranitsi. But you can call me P. That's P with an A, not another E.
0: Hello, P with an A and not another E. What did you do today?
2: Hey, that was such a lovely interview with William Dalrymple. Oh, thanks. Sounded like you were pretty well-versed with his writing. I
0: am. I'm glad it showed. You know, I've been, uh, I've had to reread some of his books just for this interview, of course.
2: Ah, what did you reread?
0: Well, I reread Lost Mountain, which I had thoroughly enjoyed the first time around. And I reread the last Mughal, and Anarchy. Well, yeah. I read Anarchy, not reread Anarchy. I hadn't read it before. A lot of work. A lot of fun, you know. And I read Paris Review of books also, and and incidentally the instruction manual for my home theater system.
2: Huh. Okay, cool, but uh, what connection does that have with Dalrymple?
0: None whatsoever. You were curious about my reading, so I thought I'd let you know.
2: Oh, how literary.
0: Okay, P with an A, what's the word?
2: It's words, actually. Mm -hmm. Title, really, I want to discuss.
0: Wait, 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 let me guess, let me guess. You want to discuss Hobson-Jobson, correct?
2: (laughs) You're so right. Am I getting predictable?
0: Well, in fairness, if I were in your place, all I talk about is Hobson-Jobson.
2: Cool. Thanks for saying so. Mm-hmm. But okay, go. Dish.
0: All right. Hobson-Jobson. Hobson-Jobson is a dictionary of Anglo-Indian words. By that, not the community of Anglo-Indians, but words during Anglo-India, you know, the during the East India Company and then the Raj. So it's a dictionary of Anglo-Indian words and terms from Indian languages, which came into use in English as a consequence of, before, and during the British rule. Well, it was put together by Henry Yule and Arthur Bernal, two civil service dudes who clearly had a lot of time whilst administering the colonies, you know. (laughs) You know, it's a compilation of words. Actually, you know what the best thing to do is, let me read you the book's subtitle. It leaves nothing to imagination. Mm -hmm. The subtitle is this, A Glossary of Colloquial... Anglo-Indian words and phrases, and of kindred terms, etymological, historical, geographical, and discursive.
2: <laughs> okay.
0: In Anglo-Indian English, the term Hobson-Jobson referred to any festival or entertainment, but the one with the most currency as the etymology for the title is not a celebration, but a ceremony during the morning of Muharram. You know, in, in its origin, the term is a corruption by British soldiers of uh, Ya Yahosain, Ya Hossein, which is repeatedly chanted by uh, the Shia Muslim people throughout the procession of uh, the Muharram. And the British soldiers corrupted that chant to first to Hossein, Gossein, and then Hossi Gossein, and then Hossein, Jossein, and finally it became Hobson-Jobson, and that's the origin. You know, that, that thing, Hobson-Jobson, that's also called echo words or rhyming reduplications like Humpty Dumpty, Mumbo Jumbo, Hokey Pokey,
2: Nambi Pambi.
0: Yes, you called.
2: <laughs> That's so self deprecating.
0: You know, they thought that their title was a hoot, a typical and delightful example, they said, implying their own dual authorship brings a tear to the eye. <laughs>
2: Hey, do you have a copy?
0: Of course I do. You know, over the years, I've owned several copies, always given them away and always gone running for yet another copy. The one I have now has about 1,000 pages.
2: We threw that many words into English?
0: At least, and we continue to. But many, no, I'll say most, are not in use anymore.
2: Uh, What are some of the words? Uh, Wait, I know shampoo and kichdi.
0: And surprisingly, these words, loot. Barbicans, tank, muddle, and dam, and many more.
2: A few from your interview now. You asked Dalrymple about the word factory.
0: Yes, I did. That word isn't Hobson-Jobson under F.
2: Hey, wait. I'm not letting you escape. Oh, no. What was that curse word you guys (laughs) were laughing about? The one that made you blush? Uh,
0: it made me blush then. I couldn't say it and I'm not going to say it now.
2: Okay, wait. I have an idea. Mm-hmm. Let's do a Wordle.
0: <laughs> well, Wordle doesn't have enough letters for it, thankfully.
2: Mm, okay, I'm going to guess. Mm. It starts with a B. Yes. Delhi taxi drivers use it all the time. Okay, I got it. Oh, oh, oh my. And that word is in Hobson Jobson?
0: Yes, under B. You know, <laughs> how, how polite we are.
2: Yeah, more polite than Hobson and Jobson, really.
0: <laughs> Hobson and Jobson, the terrible twins.
2: Yeah. And what was that Salman Rushdie reference? Mm. He wrote about Hobson Jobson? Yeah. Hey, neither of you mentioned the name of Rushdie's book. Oh,
0: sorry. Uh, well, it's an essay on Hobson Jobson from Rushdie's imaginary homelands. You know, for many, that essay was their very introduction to Hobson-Jobson.
2: Yeah, that's what Dalrymple said too.
0: Anyway, that that book, or rather that essay, is where I found that dam is a Hobson-Jobson word.
2: Dam, like the thing that holds river water?
0: No, no, no. No, no, not like the uh, Tungabhadra. This is (laughs) dam. You know, dam like the expression. You know, um, actually... Let me read you Rushdie's closing line from his essay where he references Gone with the Wind, the the very final scene. And I quote, as Rhett Butler once said to Scarlett O'Hara, frankly, my dear, I don't give a small copper coin weighing one tola, eight mashas and seven surks being the 40th part of a rupee, or to put it more precisely, a (laughs) dam. It's funny.
2: That's funny. Okay. I have a rhyming duplication of my own.
0: You do? Cool. Let's hear it.
2: It goes (laughs) bye-bye.
0: And that's our show. Thank you so much for listening and see you again next Wednesday.